Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Today we're talking to author Anna Feinberg. Anna has written many award-winning picture books, short stories and junior novels, including The Magnificent Nose and Other Marvels, Ariel, Zed and the Secret Life, and more recently the Tashi series. The latest title is the 15th Tashi book, Tashi and the Phoenix. She has also written the four books in the Minton series, both best-selling collaborations with artist Kim Gamble. Anna was born in England in 1956 but came to Australia at the age of three. Her first book, Billy Bear and the Wild Winter, published in 1988, originated from a series she wrote while working as editor at School Magazine. Anna also writes for high school students. She published Power to Burn in 1995 and in 1999 borrowed Light, described as a complex, frank portrait of female teenage sexuality. Borrowed Light was an honour book in the 2000 CBCA Book of the Year Awards for older readers and was also shortlisted for the 2000 New South Wales Premier's Literary Award. Nearly all of Anna's books have been listed as notable books by the CBC. Anna's most recent book for older readers is called Number 8. Anna, thanks for joining us today. Oh, hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, now, Anna, you come from a family of readers and your mother is a librarian. Do you remember when you were a child the kinds of books you were encouraged to read then? Yes, I do, actually, quite clearly. Um, we, we read a lot of fairy tales together when I, you know, earlier on. Um, and my mother, being the librarian, would bring home new books all the time. Mm. So um, I was very lucky that way. And, oh, look, such a range. There were Betsy Byers, um, mm. books about relationships and kids my age, I suppose, I loved. and But I also loved fantasy, the Narnia books and, mm. um, yeah, and, and Rosemary Sutcliffe. There were quite a few, you know, when I got a little bit older, historical books that I was certainly, certainly encouraged to read. My mother had quite a passion for particularly Roman history and, and so on. Right. But I, I do remember Enid Blyton being all the range and <laughs> rage and, um, and just, just her nose turning up a little, you know, I could see. <laughs> she wasn't mad about Enid Blyton, but she certainly didn't censor anything. Right. <laughs> so which would be your favourite Anna Feinberg book and why? Um, I think probably it would be number eight. That's the, the latest um, older readers book mm-hmm. I, I probably because not just because it's it's the later latest one but because it came so easily um and and books certainly don't always come easily they can mm. you know novels can can um you know be a couple of years in the writing if not more and um there can be lovely lovely easy parts to them but sometimes you you really struggle and you're in the dark well down there um number eight though was was um yeah it was just sort of easy to read to write and uh, a, a joy really um 
Probably it was based on, uh, well, based on. It was based partly on my son, and and um, it's about a boy who who has an absolute sort of passion for even numbers, really? but uh, he really despises odd numbers. And and but evens, are, you know, they make you feel sort of secure and they're reassuring. Um, and he lives with um, his mum, who um, is a singer, and they've moved around a lot in his life. Um, mm. I actually haven't at all. I've been in the one place for quite a long time, but um, <laughs> and uh, and so anyway, various various adventures happened because, in fact, in the last place that that she was live, she was working in the casino there. She saw something she shouldn't have seen, right? And um, and she moves out to the to the suburbs, which are you know quiet and safe. So she supposes, but her history catches up with her, and of course, you know, her her um, past life catches up with her son and. He has to sort of um, run for his life. So um, it, there's a mixture of, you know, humour and, and um, drama. And, uh, yeah, so I, I think that's probably why I, I just um, enjoyed the ease of it. Sure. And mm. I have to ask, does your son have a passion for even numbers? Yes, he does, yes. Right. <laughs> he particularly loved the number eight. And, um, and and very often, actually, he you know, if he was chewing, he'd have to chew twice on one side and twice on the other and have to count his peas on the plate before he ate them and so on. Really? So, you know, every, everything took quite a while, but uh, I'm glad to say he seems to be over that now. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you get your ideas for the Tashi series? You're on your 15th book now. Um, yeah. So how do you come yeah. up with so many stories for this character? Um, look, I think they actually they do draw on fairy tales um, quite often. There's such a rich... Um, rich variety there to you know to, to look at and interpret in new ways. I think we all, in some ways, rewrite ideas according to our own world. And and um, for instance, the um, I love that character of Baba Yaga who comes. She's sort of the the evil grandma from mm-hmm. um, Russian and Czech and Polish, I think, fairy tales. And um, and the Forbidden Room was actually based on Bluebeard. Um, and the magic flute, where the uh, stranger comes to town, and mm. um, there's a locust plague. Um, mm. So, so we draw on these things, and um, I think fairy tales, you know, although they're fantasy, they obviously really um, highlight um, real human dramas and conflicts, mm. don't they? You know, mm. and and there's the the source probably. They also, I mean, you know, even though they're fantasy, the Tashi stories, like most fantasy probably, it come from certain experiences too. And, and I remember Tashi Lost in the City came quite directly um, from, a, there was a day when my son was about eight and he was lost just for seven minutes at Darling Harbour. Right. And, uh, but it was the most oh, horrifying seven minutes, I think, of my life. I'm sure. It was a huge crowd and... Um, and uh, yeah, so so I just somehow knew that this was going to happen to poor old Tashi. Mm. You tend to work out your your angst sometimes through stories. Oh yes, <laughs> the lot of the writer. Now, when you were twenty eight, you lived in Italy for a year, and mm. you've mentioned in some interviews that the witch in the lake was an inspiration from living there. Can yeah. you describe how that came about? Well, um, yes, I, I think one of the lovely things about writing is that um, when you're writing a book, you tend to live in that place with those people in your mind mm. for a lot of 
a lot of your, your life and even when you're doing other things in the real world so often there's that little space will be going back there and and uh, Italy was somewhere that I really really loved living and um, just it seemed to me just the daily things um, there asking for bread coming home with the right thing having said it in Italian or, you know um, it was such a stimulating part of my life that and 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 you know coming from Sydney um, and arriving in Florence I was to do a um, a course in Italian there for three months and then stay for a year. Mm. Back in those days, I'd saved up enough to not have to work for almost that year. Wow. Couldn't do it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and, and wandering those cobbled narrow streets and, and you know, at dusk when everything, the lights have dissolved or um, outlines and the medieval churches mm. and so on, um, and I think that sense of anonymity too, I didn't know anybody and I was to live there for a year. So there was a feeling, this tinge of panic quite often, even though I felt really excited about living. But, mm. you know, if anything happened, no one would know. And um, it's a perfect place to actually live out your imagination um, when what, you're travelling in that sense. You know. What made you want to go there and why Italy then? Well, I think it began because because mainly at, at school, um, I, doing art for the um, high school certificate, we studied Renaissance painting. And um, I was so struck by the way, the difference between the medieval, you know, Giotto and so on, you know, the Byzantine sort of mosaic um beauty of, of those paintings but, but the, the people were still and you know they weren't lifelike they were like gorgeous bathroom tiles you know <laughs> and then the renaissance painters um, they just brought the human face to, and figure to life you know and there seemed to be such warmth and humanity and and wisdom and all those things mm. in in um, those faces and in those landscapes and uh, I think I just wanted to you know kind of jump through those those Da Vinci sort of arches, you know, into that life, mm. you know. Your book, Borrowed Light, is about a 16-year-old girl who falls pregnant and feels mm. alienated from a family. And it was your yeah. first young adult book. How mm. has this book been received and what are your feelings towards that book? Yeah, um, that was actually a really difficult book to write. Mm. You know, we were talking before about um, the ease with some books. I really wanted to write about adolescence and um and you know that search for self and mm. and you know the who am i but but and if I am this person, will I still fit in and will people still accept me and uh, you know aren't I weird and you know all of those those feelings um and and so often I think that's the very time too when you're starting to form relationships and and uh, and someone you know the, the attraction between people can often be you know it's it's about sex but very often you're actually really looking also for that connection mainly mm. for that connection and some sort of intimacy um, but it's such a fumbled difficult sort of time and I really wanted to write about that but I think what happened when I was writing it was that I as you do, I tend to write from the inside, you know, mm. and so you you push yourself there. And I was way back, you know, at the bottom of that well, um, you know, at 15, 16, and, and thinking about how it felt, mm. how life felt at that stage. Um, and I was rescued, really, by, by the metaphor of the, you know, the celestial world. Um, I'd written mainly fantasy before then, but I wanted mm. to write a real-life story, Um but but I just couldn't find my way in or out of that, 
you know, rather mm. gloomy place. And um, I remember one night I was telling my, my um, son a story about something else completely different and he just wouldn't get to sleep. So we just lay there in the dark for a while. And I started to tell myself the story of this um, borrowed light, but in another voice, as if I were a friend, a kind friend who wasn't right. being critical and so on. And um, and there I found the voice. So it, right. it um, and she was very interested in astronomy, and I suddenly saw this connection between between the celestial world and you know gravity and some. Some stars, you know, stars have a have much more uh, pull, and that, that other planets will orbit around there. And mm. you know, was I a star or was I a moon? And and um, very definitely a moon, and so on. And so it went. Um, but but um, in terms of reception of the book, um, it was pretty well received. I, it's very, it's quite explicit, and mm. and um, and you know, so I think that probably some schools have had a bit of difficulty with it, and others seem to have embraced it. I I always felt it would be great if it was a jump off point for people to actually discuss these issues that we all find often you know difficult to discuss, but. Um, mm. You know, I, I, that was that was would be how I'd I'd love to see it received. You're saying it was hard to get into the real world after writing fantasy. Have you yes. since then? It, has it been easier to write in the real world? Um, look, yes, I think I think that's yes, that's true. Actually, yeah, yeah, you've got to do things for the first time, don't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think books are always about your life in some way or other, mm. but um, yes, you're, they're also various disguises, which in themselves can be interesting. <laughs> yes. Where do you where do you reach into to get most of your ideas? Is there a particular place or process you draw inspiration from? Like, is there a system almost? Um, I think a system starts to happen once you've got an idea, but I I think really feeling is the seat of the imagination, you know, that that when you have deep feelings about something that's happened or that you've dreamed or uh, whatever, that's the the urge you have then to express it and explore it. Mm. So I I do tend to write about things I feel deeply about and and even just, you know, to sustain writing a novel that would, you know, for maybe two, three years, Mm. you need to be really... um, it's like falling in love, I suppose. You need to be totally um, swept away by an idea and involved and engaged. So, um, and once you have an idea, um, for instance, with borrowed light, when I thought about using the the um, celestial world, you know, as a mirror for what was going on um, on the earth, mm. it's amazing then how how much you see around you. Um, events that are related you know it's mm. almost as if you have a, a focus that's sort of suddenly turned on and and triggers um, your observations and, and so on but um yes I, I think often just a heightened awareness then of, right. of what, what you're feeling and then once the book is completed is that it, it, it must be sort of almost a sense of um well not loss but that something's gone away that yes. world has gone away. Yes, it is. A, I think it is a bit of loss, actually. It's a funny, uneasy time, and I remember feeling it quite 
you know, particularly with, with number eight, I hadn't ever, maybe because I enjoyed writing it so much and, you know, I'd go for walks with my dog and, you know, I'd got so used over, over the last year of worrying about Esmeralda's maths homework, you know, which she just found so difficult and would she ever understand reciprocal fractions or, you know, <laughs> or about the boy Jackson, you know, counting his peas on his plate and how long it took him. And, um, and then, you know, that, that week when it had gone and finished and nothing more I could do, just this sort of quietness in the bush mm. as I walked and well, what am I going to think about now? It's like <laughs> not being inhabited anymore. <laughs> wow. Um, now you wrote your first story when you were eight years old and I believe your mother kept it. Can you tell me about this, about the story and also whether yeah. you still have it? <laughs> yeah, well, actually I don't. I don't. In fact, I, I, um, I do wonder where it went in there and those great urges of spring cleaning and <laughs> renewal. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's gone, but I do remember it. It was it was about um, a mermaid, and I think for about a year or so, I tended to write stories about mermaids. I, quite early, I discovered that that when you're writing about something, you can actually live it, you know, mm. in your imagination. And um, I think I just yearn for an expanded sort of life, you know. As I'm sure we all do. We we do it in play when we're little, don't we? And mm. um, but. Um, I love the the freedom about you know my particular mermaids you know swimming the way they swim through the seas and mine mine of course could you know go anywhere they wanted and and um, if they got lonely they'd uh, I invented this system where they'd they had a hat and if a passing ship you know came along they'd they'd throw the hat over a sailor's head and that meant that he could breathe underwater. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and so, so he could he could come under the water and spend the day, and you know, and visit islands and all sorts of things. So, yes, I was just totally into it. <laughs> when when did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Um, not until very late. I didn't think I would I could ever do it for a living. I I knew that I enjoyed mm. writing, and certainly I enjoyed reading. Um, but I got a job with the school magazine, which is still going, yeah, and yeah. Um, it's been going since 1916, and mm. it's full of stories and plays and poems, and and I got a job as um, an assistant editor there, and worked there for 10 years, actually, and we yeah. had to write stories and articles and so on, often for the magazine, and um, one of my stories, Billy Bear in the Wild Winter, was picked up by Angus and Robinson to make a... Um, they wanted to make a book out of it. Mm. And uh, it, in a sense, that sort of gave me the idea that maybe it would be possible. Um, and right. I, I don't know that I would have gone on to write another, I mean, for publishing, but I luckily I had a, I was working under an editor, Kath Hawke, who was, oh, she was a wonderful woman. She um, And she was terribly encouraging about my writing and so on and kept mm. urging me on. And uh, so I sort of went on from there. Mm -mm. So you seem to like books with magical aspects like Mrs. Pepperpot and the Narnia series. Mm, How mm. did you learn to incorporate aspects of magic into your works? Um, I think uh, oh, it's an interesting question. I, mm. I think magic for me has always felt very much like a dr the dream world. You know, I love the way um, 
I suppose it's a more Freudian look at it, but you might be dreaming about the sole of your shoe, but really it's your soul. Or right. You know, in, in dreams, things are so obscure. Yes. And I, I love the way you, you work out, you know, what it really might have meant to you when um, it's probably a completely different scene, but you can extract things like a puzzle, almost like some, you know, incredible geometry or something. And, um, and I feel that... Um, that magic and um, fairy tales and so on, they're heavy, weighty with symbols like dreams are. Mm. And um, so so in a sense, I, I think I have used symbols of my own dreams and what I've read and, and think about how they relate to the character's real-life experiences mm. and um, try and get them to reflect that, you know, well, as a writer, you do live in another world when you're writing in particular. And you were just saying before, at the end of number eight, you were thinking, well, what do I think of now? Do you do you crave, the, you know, the, the next world or do you crave? I do. I uh-huh. do. And I, and I always look so longingly, you know, I read about writers saying that, that, um, that you know, while they're writing one book, they've, they've got ideas for the next and, mm. you know, that it's just, but, but I have long periods of drought <laughs> in between, you know, between the major sort of novels, I suppose. Yes. And I, you know, I'm sort of grieving for the last and thinking about the next and, but it's so wonderful when it, when it arrives, mm. you know, it's, um, Describe it. What's that feeling when it arrives? Oh, it is like falling in love, you know, when you suddenly you see, maybe you've seen someone at a bus stop, you know, and there's this, as, as if you, and you sort of know looking at their face, your world's going to change, you know. Well, it's it's a bit, it's a bit like that, you know, that, that um, it would drop in out of nowhere and um, and I'll just know. Wow. You know, for instance, I did a um, short story once um, called The Ghost Bird and um, and I knew I had to write a, a story for teenagers but I really had no ideas at that stage at all and I, I was driving and going shopping I think and, and um, John Dengate came on the radio talking about mutton birds and mm. what rigid flight paths they have, you know, they'll fly, they fly from Tasmania to Japan or Siberia and, and they, they always go the same way, no matter what's in their way, they'll just go the same way and I found that fascinating, I knew something was starting so I pulled over and, and started to make notes, you know, <sighs> next to the, you know, two kilos of meat or whatever <laughs> shopping list and, and, um, and I think what it was that when he was talking about this rigidity, I was thinking, I know people like that. You know, and there's certain aspects of myself like that, that that I know this way and I know this kind of living and life and and I always do this no matter what, you know. (laughs) And um, so I I just sort of, a character came from there, you know, somebody who had come from another country in another situation and was living here and who had a son and he just, the father just couldn't adapt to this new um world and right. it was a little bit like the mutton birds and in the end I, I had to kill him off because the mutton bird he was in camp out camping and he was in the flight path of this flock of mutton birds. Okay. <laughs> Which yeah, sounds um sounds cruel but um, you know, his ghost anyway came back to resolve things mm-hmm. with his son. But uh, 
you know, so, so so who would have known that going shopping that day, no. I would listen to that radio. Uh, and but for me, I was so grateful to John Dengate mm. and the ABC and you know the shopping list because <laughs> it just made all the difference for the next few months. So when you are in that zone, when you're in love, um, mm. can you describe your working day? Um, well, I wish it were more disciplined than I could, in fact, just give myself to, <laughs> you know, the subject. But, but um, you know, with domestic life and so on, usually I, I, you know, get my son off to school and do the breakfast and so on. And, um, and hopefully then I have the day to myself or at least the next few hours. But I always find I have to wipe down the kitchen sink. That's really important and have things in order, you know, because um, otherwise I feel chaotic and, I, and I've left things in a mess before I go into this <laughs> other world. So, so um, You have a ritual? I, I, it's a bit of a ritual with the, with the kitchen sink, I think. Right. And, and now also I walk my... Um, my dog too and and that the act of walking is lovely actually it frees you it's almost like a passage from from the the real world into um into the imaginary world mm. because i can you know i've got bush nearby which is lucky and so it's sort of quiet and still and you can just let your mind off its leash i think mm. you know not the dog. But. <laughs> <laughs> so what would your advice be for aspiring writers? What tips might you have for them to make the writing process easier? Mm. Well, one of the first things I'd say is to be kind to yourself. You know, I feel like I've spent years with this critical voice on my shoulder saying, you know, call that a sentence. You know, why do you even bother writing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you need it. it I think writing's a bit like dreaming while you're awake, and um, and you need to you need to do the dream, you know, in order to then have the material there and the excitement and the discovery to edit back and shape and so on, you know. Mm-hmm. And if that editor on your shoulder comes in too too much and too strongly, it can really inhibit that uh, that flow and and the whole reason for writing. Um, so, you know, I, I try to make conditions for, for, for yourself so that so that you can be kind and, and let it go, you know. Mm. Um, and and also take a notebook. You know, I often say that to children at schools, but but you never know when an idea is going to come, and and mm. it's terribly helpful to be able to write it down right then because a bit like dreams. Um, you might remember the flavour of something, but not the details. Mm. You, know. you never know when John, Dende- John Dengate's going to talk about mutton birds. No, exactly, exactly. That's the wonderful unpredictability of the world, you mm. know. <laughs> yeah, and um, so so that about being ready and being open and also open to, you know, to the world, to observing and, and also to what you're feeling about the world. Mm. Um, so I suppose a bit of it is an inside journey, you know, get really getting to know yourself and what's important to you. Mm. And and within that, I think, then is the detail, you know, if you're going to talk about a tree, what kind of tree it is, it, is it? you know, the, mm. the more detail you have in your, in your stories, it's individualizes it and brings that feeling um often the better it is mm. within reason <laughs> <laughs> and and finally what's next for you um well i've written a um a grown-up book um which i'm i'm um 
just starting to edit at the moment. Mm -hmm. That was probably my most difficult process, I think. Mm. And um, uh, so I'm thinking at the moment of, well, I'm about to edit that. And then I've been writing another um, another sh um, short novel for children mm -hmm. and thinking about another adult book. So I'm a bit all over the place at the moment. Can you tell us a bit about the grown-up book yet? Um, yeah, I, yes, it's about a woman who's um, quite, uh, she's slightly obsessive actually, okay. she's very passionate about um, escapology, about oh. um, particularly Houdini and the way in which, you know, he can defy death with his, um, with his escape acts and uh, she's probably rather keen to escape from her own life but mm. has no idea how to do it and so it's a sort of a, a journey for her, I suppose, about learning how to escape, but um, come back too to herself. Was it hard to make that transition then to the grown-up book? Um, in some ways it was. I think I think you feel when you've been writing children's books for a long time, mm. although young adults um, was also a challenge, but um, you feel, oh, oh, I can explore this bit and I can now I can say it about this and so on. And sometimes you can get lost inside, I think, mm. um, and you've got to be very aware of the narrative structure, and uh, it's just as important in a in a um, book for adults as it is for children. I think. Mm. Mm. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today, Anna. Well, thank you, Valerie. That was great. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au or on my personal website, valeriekoo.com. That's valeriekhoo.com. Thank you for listening.